Christmas. No, Thanksgiving's over. We're done with that. We're moving on. So uh, this is my Christmas message to us as a church. Um, I will be out of the pulpit until the 27th of December. Um, And so I wanted to give you my Christmas message, but it's actually uh, along the same lines of where we've been. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of James. Um, I want to pick up on the theme of the video and a little bit of what Aaron was saying also. Uh, As it relates to Christmas and we work our way now into the Christmas season, thoughts go to gift giving and gift buying and for most of us, gift getting. Um, Do you know what you want for Christmas? I'm sure that I see a few hands going up. Most of them are under the age of 40. Um, But most of us over the age of 40 have what we would like to get also Let me make this recommendation to you as a parent, grandparent, friend, whatever, an adult who is giving gift to somebody. Make sure they work. Uh, When I was a kid, if you want to know why I'm so messed up, I'd like to take you to my childhood every once in a while, uh, and my children for that matter. But um, So when I was a kid, I don't remember if it was Christmas or not. It seems like it must have been Christmas, but... Whatever the case, I got a gift of a model rocket. Now, I know that our Boy Scouts know what that is, but you know what I'm talking about, model rocket? It's those little things, and you put them together, and you paint them, and you spend hours and hours and hours getting them ready to fly, and you put the little propulsion thing down in there, and uh, it's got these metal leads that come out of that, and you hook up these alligator clips to it, and you push the button, and it sends the electrical impulse, and it flies a 1,000 feet, And then it floats away and you never find it again. Except my gift of a model rocket didn't work that way. My gift of a model rocket, uh, I I guess I was too young to do it all myself because I seem to remember my dad doing all the work on it and me watching, including when we got out to the playground of the elementary school near our house and my dad hooked the leads up to it and he walked back with the wire and we were in my anticipation was I'm going to see my rocket fly and he hit the button and nothing happened. And so he checked things out. He's a fixer by nature and so he checked things out and he worked it all over and he went back and did the big countdown and he hit the button and nothing happened. And so finally my dad, now my dad was not necessarily the most patient kind of guy. And uh, so finally, my dad decided there's got to be a better way. And so he went over to that rocket with an open flame. Now, I suspect it was a cigarette lighter. I'm not sure if he smoked in those days or not. But um, so he went over and he tried to light that thing by itself. And the last thing I remember was him running back towards me and me seeing my rocket just engulfed in flames sitting on the launch pad. (laughs) Worst gift ever. So when you're doing your Christmas shopping, stay away from the $9.99 gifts. (laughs) So what do you want for Christmas? You know, we take Jesus and the Christmas event uh, very seriously, and we should. But here's one of the things that I think we miss uh, often in our church circles. We seem to like to keep Jesus in the manger. 
Um, because a little baby is a lot easier to control than the renegade religious guy walking through the countryside, turning Judaism on its head 30-something years later. Here's my, I think my concern in this is that so often when we come to the Christmas celebration of the Christ child, uh, and we celebrate this with Jesus as the reason for the season, yard signs and all that kind of stuff, um, and that's all true enough that you can't deny it, wouldn't want to deny it, but surely Jesus works better than just a baby in a manger. It's not that the baby in the manger is not important. Clearly, that's part of God's design and the advent, if you will, and, and the Christ child as he comes in. But, you know, the reality is that God did not intend for the whole Christmas season to end after we celebrate that baby in a manger and leave him there until Easter. And all of a sudden, he's a grown-up adult who's been crucified. I want to talk this morning about gifts that work. And actually, this is James talking about this. And, and James, as we have been seeing, as we've begun to work our way deep into his, God, uh, into his epistle now, James keeps pushing this basic truth to us, and that is our faith has to work. And it has to work out there in the nitty-gritty everyday, dirty life that we live in this dirty world. A little baby in a manger doesn't help with that. And so if we try to leave him in the manger and act like that's the end-all, be-all of what Jesus did for us, then we miss the plan of salvation totally. So James says, your faith has to work. And so as you fill out your Christmas wish list... I think that we should all include what James gives us in this one little verse. It's a little verse, and it's got eight different characteristics of a faith that works in the way we behave ourselves. So we come to this, this verse 17 of chapter 3, where James says this for us, but the wisdom from above is first pure. That's the first of these eight different statements. And then peaceable, gentle, Open to reason. We looked at those four last week. We come to the next four today. Full of mercy and good fruits. Impartial and sincere. And with these things, what James is laying out for us in this one verse is this contrast between the way the world lives and calls it wisdom and the way Christians must live and call it wisdom. But the difference from those is the source of the wisdom we're talking about. And we're going to see that in a little bit. I'll go back and we'll read and fill in some of the blanks of what James is, is pointing to as we get to verse 17. But in this, we find these. And now the last four statements or characteristics that he have that mark a person whose faith works. The first one is, he says, full of mercy. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, a courtroom it's packed with people. It has been one of those high-profile, uh, prosecutor-driven trials. The person who is the defendant has been accused of a heinous crime, the worst of the worst against humanity. He is clearly guilty. We have video footage of the fact that he's guilty. 
We have eyewitnesses that dispel any doubt at all that the guy is guilty. The prosecutor has laid out a masterful presentation of just how guilty this guy is. Beyond a doubt, guilty is charged. Now, we don't have to look too far in everyday life in America today to put a face to that defendant. Our community, within the last several years, has gone through that, where an individual decided to get into a car and drive it like a missile through town, and ultimately taking three lives. It's not hard for us to put faces on this scenario. What's hard for us is to imagine that in the face of that guilt, anybody, especially a judge, might say into the midst of that, we recognize that you are guilty. But we will chalk it up to a good experience for you to learn from, and you're free to go. Now, how would that set with you? I think that most of us uh, have a tendency to let our drive for justice get in the way of our mercy giving. Now, you need to understand, I'm not suggesting that we let people off for things that they're guilty. As a matter of fact, you'll, if you know me well at all, you'll know uh, that uh, I'm pretty strong on consequences. Uh, I think that for too long in our world, especially even in our, or especially in our families, we have allowed people to get off for bad behavior without any sense of consequence at all, which is one of the reasons that we have such turmoil in our society today. I, I had the opportunity when a judge who was presiding over the case where my son had been assaulted and nearly beaten to death at a high school. The judge allowed me to stand in front of the court and tell her and everybody else there what I thought ought to happen to that kid. It took everything within me not to ask for that kid's head on a silver platter. I'm I'm big on consequences. And justice. But our drive for consequence and justice may well interfere with living a life of mercy. I have a friend. matter of fact, he's one of my best friends in all of the world. Um, and a day long ago, when video games were first beginning uh, to have the opportunity to play as a group, and you could, you know, whether it's online or in, in this particular case in a room in his house... Uh, you get people all over the place and everybody's playing the same video game, okay? Uh, well, those were fun days with him because uh, he had all the, the cutting-edge stuff and all, you know, the graphics were great, the huge screen TV, and so we're in the same room and he and I are teaming up against our kids and we're just annihilating them in games. It was awesome. And, uh, and that was when Halo was big. I mean, Halo 1. And um, if you don't know what that is, well... Welcome to the 21st century. We'll talk about it later. But uh, in this particular game, one of the weapons of choice was if you're really good enough, you could acquire a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher. Uh, and my friend used to love to run up behind his kids and get right up on them and shoot a rocket launcher and just blow them off of the screen, right? 
Uh, and then I started ad adapting a little bit of that, and I found that there's a great mental image while I was driving, and somebody would pull in and cut me off. I started wishing for real shoulder-mounted rocket launchers. Because after all, who deserves to be obliterated more than somebody who doesn't know how to drive getting in your way? That sounds like a merciful... <laughs> Amen's aside, does that sound like a merciful approach to life? Now, you know, this shouldn't surprise you about me. I told you a long time ago, I'm human just like you are. I struggle with the same kind of stuff you do and seems to play out a lot behind the wheel of our cars, doesn't it? But how well does this mentality of being vindictive in the name of justice, how well does that play out in church life? You know that one of the realities seems to be a reality in our churches is that we love to kick people who are down as we walk past them on our righteous road to wherever we're going. It's been in vogue for a long time, the saying that says that Christianity, Christians are the only ar army that shoots its wounded. I think that James speaks into that truth and he says the person who lives rightly is full of mercy. If your faith works, it's got to work with people who don't deserve mercy. You know, we, these, uh, we, we in church like to do these, every once in a while, these spiritual gift inventories. And, and we give them to people because we want church people to know, okay, what spiritual gift might you have so that you can plug it into everyday church life? Because if you have a gift in that, that's the best place for you to serve. You'll be more fulfilled there. And so we do that on a semi-regular basis, and I'm for that. I think it's a smart thing for us to do. Uh, would you like to know where your pastor rates on the spiritual gift of mercy? If you could get past my rocket launcher, I'd show you my scores. I got a feeling that I'm not the only one who scores low on some of that kind of stuff. But here's James's deal. When it comes to life in the church... Uh, we could talk about life outside the church, but let's focus in here for a little bit. That Mercy needs to be one of those things that marks all of us. It's not just whether you have the spiritual gift for that. That's a whole other discussion. Mercy is part of the everyday life of a Christian. It is a characteristic of someone whose faith works. But we love our legalism and we love our vindictive approach and we love our cries for justice. And James speaks into that and he says that wise guys will exhibit this life that overflows. It's full of, the word there means to the top and then more. Overflows with mercy. Over the long haul in churches when we don't live that way, we create a church that is judgmental, unforgiving, and cold. The word here, points to active compassion. It, it points to actively engaging somebody who's hurting or is suffering, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. My mind goes to Mother Teresa, that small little frail-looking, emaciated-looking lady who for years, as a Catholic nun, 
gave her life to some of the most unfortunate and needy people on the planet in India. Merciful, a life marked by giving into the midst of a huge need. Maybe we go to that pastor whose wife was murdered while he went to work out at a gym not too long ago. And his words, as I understand, they were given that essentially said, I've forgiven those people who did that. I got to tell you, that guy's faith works better than mine. I wish that wasn't so, but it seems to be. And so with this, my mind goes to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and in that critical turn in the Beatitudes, there's eight Beatitudes, the first four deal with our relationship with God. It's the vertical relationship, the love God part of the two great commandments. But at the turn, the first of the second four Beatitudes that deal with our relationships with others, that's the horizontal reach. And because of my love for God, now I move out to love other people. And the first marker of of those Beatitudes are blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What James is saying to us here points out the contrast between those who are divinely empowered to mercy from those who are not. Let's look back just so that you get the point of reference that he's giving us here. We look back to verses 14 and following where James lays out for us what the earth wisdom looks like. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 14 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic even. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And then James throws in this huge three-letter word. It it sets off the contrast. We, We see what selfishness and that drive for building my own kingdom produces in verses 14 through 16. But verse 17 says that divinely birthed characteristic in your life. The wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, and then we get into this full of mercy. You with me on this so far? Now, I want to make one other comment, but I'll make sure we're on the same page. Y'all, you get the point of this? Hello? Okay. So, uh, let me just make one other comment about this. Those of you who get this mercy thing right drive the rest of us nuts. The vindictive people, okay, I'll do this important to myself. Those of us who really like the whole cry for justice and we're going to get our 10 pounds of flesh out of, you know, those of you who are full of mercy, you just drive us nuts. Now, my wife, I'm, I'm not going to tell you which side of the fence she's, yeah, I will, okay? So let me just tell you how this goes. So we're driving down the road and I'm full of vindict. I'm full of every man, you, you should... Pay for what you did. I'm full of that. And I don't mind telling her I'm full of that. And she drops this one little statement that ruins my day. You know how it goes? Now, Mark, that's all she has to say. Okay? Because I know that she's checking me at the point of mercy. 
I love her for that kind of stuff, even though it infuriates me. I don't mind telling you, it really does. So James says, be a wise guy. And part of being a wise guy means that you are overflowing with mercy. Hear me carefully. I'm not saying that there should not be consequence. There should be. If you're a parent and you have children at home and you don't show them consequence for their bad behavior, you're raising a terrible citizen. And sooner or later, they're going to come up against some authority that's going to make them toe the line. I I tell you, you school teachers having to deal with some of these kids who come from some of these parents, I don't know how you do it. But I pray for you every day because I know that you're the front lines out there dealing with it. Be a wise guy. That's the first thing. James says, secondly, be full of good fruits, or this person is full of good fruits. Have you heard of the Midas touch? I don't know if that, I don't remember, I didn't check it, if it's a fable or if it's just a story, but the basic idea is King Midas, you know, and everything he touched turned to gold. Do you know people like that? If you do, would you introduce me to them? Because I, that, that whole gold thing, I like the way that sounds. Um, I've been in church work long enough, had enough staff members, uh, that I've discovered that there are some people who have the reverse Midas touch. Everything they touch turns to lead or dead. And I'm overstating that, obviously. But here's a good truth for you. Uh, Those kind of people are easy to spot, both of them. The kind of person who's full of good fruits, as James uses it here, and I like the fact that he uses a plural on the word fruit there. Um, it's, It's not hard to see those people. Maybe Jesus should be the best example for us to go to in this person. Because I'm intrigued as I study through the life of Christ. I'm intrigued by the draw that he had and continues to have to common people. Now, the religious crowd didn't like him at all. uh, But that's because he was threatening their kingdom. But regular people, real people, common everyday people were just drawn to Christ. You know why that is? Because he was thoroughly divine. Even though he was 100% human, he also was 100% divine. And in that, he just, the, the love of God, the mercy of God, every piece of the goodness of God just radiated from who he was. And he talked to people like they mattered. And he helped them get beyond the shackles of a religious system that was tying them down and denying them life. Jesus walked into the midst of that and and just lived his life out. It was full of good fruit. Instead of producing strife like we see in verses 14 through 16, the person that James is talking about here is the one who people want to be around. You you watch them and there's this trail of people behind them who have benefited from their life. Have you known people that you just didn't really want to be around them? Maybe at first it seemed to be okay, but the more you're around them, the less you really kind of liked. And it it got to be where it was more work than what it was really worth. And so you just kind of move from them on to another crowd. Those are the reverse Midas touch kind of people. They, they, they They don't leave a line of people who are benefiting from them behind them. They leave them a line of 
angry people sometimes and frustrated people sometimes and some who even say, you know what, if that's what Christianity looks like, I'm not doing that. James says the person with wisdom from above, the person whose faith works is one who is full of good fruits. I would say to you, this is the kind of characteristic that we can't fake. No matter how good you are with people, that, this is not about being good with people. This is about God flowing through your life in such a way that other people recognize it. So let's move on because I'm going to run out of time. The third one. Now, the English Standard Version, which is what I preach from, says impartial, and that's a good translation. But I think the New American Standard Version has a better translation of this. It, it captures the word better. That's an interesting statement because this is the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament. It's a rare word. And James grabs it and he pushes it into play here because it captures one of the key things, and it is a contrast to something else James has said. And we're not going to take the time, but if we went over to James chapter 1, verse 8, and James is talking about that person whose faith doesn't work. And in the trials of life, he says there that they are tossed around by waves and they're unstable in all of their ways. Well, this word, New American Standard, says is unswerving or unwavering in the way this person handles life. Barclay says that to, this is the person who knows his own mind. He chooses its course and he sticks with it or he abides by it. This is the person who has convictions and they don't change. Now, let me stop for a second and, and give us a caution because the reality is most of us have convictions. We know what we like and we know what we think is right. But just because we think it's right doesn't make it right. That wisdom from below, the earthly kind of wisdom, uh, has that same kind of characteristic that we're talking about here, but that we call it, we have a different word for that. It's called hard-headed. It's called obstinate. James calls it demonic. You see, the difference here is that this is a characteristic that only the Holy Spirit can produce in your life. This is a good time for me to start playing these things against one another or with one another to be exact. Because that call for mercy uh, needs to be added with this one. This sense of having a sense of conviction about things. Because if all you have is a heart full of mercy, you're going to you're going to be taken advantage of by people. I think there's a certain amount of that taken advantage of you just don't need to worry about and let God take care of it. There's another part where, as we have said before, you take a a stand, you draw a line in the sand, and you fight and you die if if you have to. That's this word. How does this play out in church life? I have a pastor friend. Um, I guess I'll say it that way. Um, you know, I came from the Rio Grande Valley where I served for 20 years. And uh, the Rio Grande Valley in the McAllen-Edinburgh area down to Brownsville all the way up to Laredo roughly is almost entirely Hispanic. I'm going to be generous and say maybe 10% of the population is non-Hispanic down there. Um, 
and much of that, go back 100 years, 150 years, uh, much of that population, the Hispanic population, actually came across from Mexico. And so one of the things that happened down there was as the Anglo people decided, and a lot of these were investment people from the east, uh, decided that there was money to be made in the Rio Grande Valley. The climate was such that they could go down and plant vegetable farms and some of that kind of stuff. So big money, Anglo people moved down into that area. And because they had big money and the power that comes with it, they essentially subjugated much of the Hispanic population. Now, it wasn't like slavery uh, in the South, uh, but it was close to that. And there was this holdover of that mentality through the years. So one of the things that I noticed when I got down there, and this was true in the church where I served when I went down there first as a youth minister, that in a sea of Hispanic people, there was this white church there. And it was going to be white because it was one of those where Hispanics were not really welcome. It wasn't that they were turned away. It was just clear that it wasn't going to be a Hispanic kind of church. And our pastor wisely said, that cannot be true as we go forward. We have to represent the community in which we live. And so as a staff, we began to move to turn the demographic of that church. All of that comes back to talking about church life and Baptist life in that area. Because when I was there, um, the Baptist life, that's the associational life of that area, and 40, roughly 40 churches up and down a 100-mile stretch of the Rio Grande River, 40 churches there. Most of them were Hispanic. Most of them were really small churches. And a few old white guys in the association ran it all. And so it came time that one of those old white guys who was the director of missions was going to retire. And this pastor that I'm referring to was the moderator for the association. And so the big white power guy who had been in charge there for 30 years himself pulled that pastor in and he said, okay, we're going to have to find a new director of missions. Here's the guy that I want who happens to be white. Now, my pastor friend said, we're not doing that. And he laid out his convictions about how the next director of missions needed to represent that area, needed to be Hispanic. And under God, he was going to do his best as the leader of that search committee to see to it that only Hispanics were on the search committee and that they wouldn't look at anybody who wasn't a Hispanic to be in charge. Now, I'm surprised y'all didn't hear that explosion here from deep south Texas when that happened. But that man's stance and that man's position on this issue captures this word. The characteristic that James is promoting here is the one that says, we're going to do this right. And you can kill me if that's what it takes. But under God, we're going to do this right. That, that finds its way into the nooks and the crannies between kingdoms and the kingdom in a local church. Because there's always somebody wanting 
to defend their kingdom. This is the kind of stuff that either kills a church or makes a church. So James says, be a wise guy. Let this be true in your life. I'm going to dive to the finish here with this last one. Our musicians can come on up. But this last word, all I really want to say about it is that it is a synonym for the first word that started this. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure. This last word is sincere. It's essentially the same idea. And James gives us with that a rhetorical device. It's the same word at the beginning. It's the synonym at the end that means the same thing, synonym, right? And so those two words together come together to say everything in between those two words is a function of those two words. (laughs) It's this idea of being without hypocrisy, pure in every sense of who you are and what you do. All of these other things become part of the mix for him, but he says essentially that this person that we're talking about, the wise guy whose faith works, what you see is what you get. And what you see is good. So does your faith work? Does it work in the way you live your life every day? Are you a kingdom builder with a small K? Are you building the kingdom of God? James says your faith has to work. And it's not enough to have, and I'm back to my Christmas gift thing that I started with, don't have a little Jesus in a manger that doesn't work to help you with your life. Jesus in a manger is only the beginning from the human perspective. God's plan started way before that. But from a human perspective, we go to that and we begin to see what faith that works looks like. And it just poured out of Jesus. Does it pour out of you? The people around you see a faith that works or they just see another church-going person? This invitation time we go to is for you to act on whatever it is the Holy Spirit's dealing with you about. If you feel like you need to join the church, we'd love to have you. You can come see us. We'll have, be standing at the back so it's a little easier to get back there to us. But you come, you want to join the church, we'd be happy to do that. Just come to work. We've got enough to just sit around. If you're going to join, come work. Maybe there's something in your life you need to get straight. You know it. Maybe you don't even know who Jesus is. This whole thing about faith is just gnawing at you and you can't get away from it. Now's the time. Do something about it. At least have a discussion. That doesn't cost you anything. We're not going to try to put you in a corner and make you come up with some decision you don't want to make. We'll just talk through it. Holy Spirit will deal with you and show you truth in it. Whatever it is, this invitation time is for you to act on that. Father, we ask that you would take this time, be glorified in it, use it to change lives in Jesus' name.